Hey, LifePoint, welcome to Sunday at Home. My name is Jonathan Holmes, and I'm the pastor of community here. Now, if you have your scriptures with you this morning on your phone or in your Bible, then go ahead and turn to Philippians 2, and we're going to be working from verse 1 this morning. Before we get there, now a few years ago, I remember a story where I, I, I sat down on my couch, and I had my laptop open in front of me, and I ha- I'm in this Facebook group with all these other youth pastors. It's made exclusively up youth pastors. So this is, you know, th- there's, there's potential here for damage, for craziness, for bad things to happen, right? And so I'm in this group, and all of a sudden a discussion pops up, and a question comes up, and I start reading through the comments, and I had no idea how opinionated I was on how someone needs to answer this question. And I quickly converted from Jonathan on the couch to a keyboard warrior. Do you know this term? See, a keyboard warrior is someone who sits on their couch and actively fights against everyone through comments, through belittling language, just through anger, and just just slams those keyboards, trying to slam that other person on the other side just so that they know that you're right. And you're probably thinking, you know, Jonathan, why don't you just shut your computer? I, I bet you've had moments like this too. Just turn off the phone. Don't send the email. Don't send that text, right? Like, those moments are, are, are the come, and we just say, why did I not do that, right? But because it's, we hear this whisper, Jonathan, who will tell them that they're wrong? Jonathan, you need to tell them the truth. You are a beacon of truth. No, get that out of there, right? This stuff doesn't matter. I even had to come alongside because I, man, I, I went after him. And I still remember my last thing that I said on this post was I said, last word, right? Because I was an admin, I turned off the comments and I was like, mm, yeah, I like that power, right? That's ridiculous. But we've all had those times and I had to come alongside that person and I had to talk to them and apologize to them because that was not my greatest moment. But it got me thinking, why in the world do these things happen? Why do we find ourselves in situations where we can't not send the email? We can't not send the text message. We can't not share that thing. We can't not have the last word. What is that inside of us that is pushing us over the edge and trying to prove how right we are or how our truth is the best truth and whatever that means? See, the same thing that made me a keyboard warrior that evening it's the same thing that keeps us from being honest with others. It keeps us from admitting our weaknesses. It keeps us from saying, I'm sorry. It keeps us from celebrating other people's successes genuinely. It keeps us from forgiving others. It keeps us from going out of our way to help others. And most devastatingly, it keeps us from following Jesus. What is that thing that keeps us from these right, true, and good things? It's pride. There's no sin easier to spot in others, but harder to see in ourselves. There is simply no way for me to overstate the devastation that pride causes. See, Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. See, pride leads us down a path of self-justification and self-affirmation like this false feedback loop where we're saying, I'm good, I'm, I'm loved, I'm pretty, I'm the best, I'm the, the most truthful, whatever it is. And we are just feeding into ourselves this false feedback loop where there is no wisdom to be found there. See, the New Testament in both James 4 and 1 Peter 5 quotes the same proverb, Proverbs 3.34. 
Now, I should tell us how important this proverb is, and listen to this. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes. Now, we've probably heard that before, because it's, it's three places in the Bible, right? You've probably heard that before, and it may have lost some of its weight. So think about that word oppose. That word oppose there is a Greek term that they used for military, that it was the opposing side, so that when we are found in pride, it's we're sitting on the other side of the battlefield of the kingdom of God, and we're pointing our finger at God and saying, listen, I'm here to build my kingdom, not yours. You feel that weight? Pride is a big deal. Proverbs 16, 5 and 8, 13 says that God hates the proud in heart. You hear that language? He hates. We oppose God. C.S. Lewis said it well. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you can't see something that's above you. Answer this question. Visualize it in your head. What is your greatest barrier to following Jesus today? Really think about it. Visualize yourself. You're walking. And there's something holding your hand, pulling you backwards. Or maybe there's something that's cementing around your feet, keeping you from taking that next step. Step, what is that thing? And for a lot of us, we thought of something external. It's our wicked culture. It's my current circumstances. It's the year that we're facing in 2020. Whatever it is, we think of something outside of ourselves. But friends, you don't have to look anywhere else except inside of yourself. See, the solution to all your problems isn't finding your true self inside yourself, finding your inner beauty, whatever. It's all sin. When we look inside of ourselves, we see pride. We see sinful hearts. We see brokenness. There is no end to how sinful and devastated we are by the fall. Our hearts are wicked and full of deceit. See, the problem in Genesis 3, is not the tree in the garden. It's the people. See, pride is a condition of the heart in which you reject dependence on God and vow to depend entirely on self. A prideful heart now looks entirely inward to determine what is good and what is evil, what is wise and what is foolish. It was through pride that the devil became the devil, as it says in Isaiah. Through pride, we twist the great commandment that Jesus gave us to say, love yourself, not your God. And love yourself with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and you will finally be happy when you can truly love who you are. It's not the great and first commandment. Your greatest barrier to loving Jesus more tomorrow is loving yourself too much today. The thing holding you back in your walk with Christ is a too high view of self, and it's not anything else. So what does God hate? He hates the proud. What hope is there for a Christian then? And this is the entire sermon in a single sentence. The call of the Christian is to humble themselves as Christ humbled himself, that they might have the same mind, the mind of Christ. The call of the Christian is to humble themselves, as Christ humbled himself, that they might have the same mind, the mind of Christ. So if you have your Bible and you're in Philippians 2, 
I'm excited to read this passage with you. For us to be stirred in our, in our hearts and our minds of worship of the only one who's worthy of our worship. We don't worship ourselves. We don't worship our views or our images of who we think that we are. We worship the true picture of Jesus Christ. And starting in verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pray with me. Father, may your word teach us, may it confront us, and may it comfort us as we seek to follow the way of Jesus by not merely hearing, but obeying your word. Give us the courage to do just that. Amen. So first, let's look at the call of the Christian. What is the call of the Christian? And Paul is writing here in verse 1, and he's writing about the unity, how we can all have the same mind, that that mind is given to us. He is assuming these things in verse 1, that these four statements are true. They're, they're known as if statements or first-class conditional statements, but that, there's an assumption of truth. So you could replace that if with a since, and it would read, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, and since there is affection and sympathy, since these things are true, Paul then moves to exhortation. He moves, and he says in verse 2, complete my joy, because in chapter 1, Paul is joyful to be speaking to the Philippian church. He loves these people. And he's saying, complete this, make it even richer. By what? By having the same mind. That we would be like-minded. That we would have the same love. That we would be one in spirit or unity. And we'd be one in purpose. That we would be together. That we would be one, unified in him. See, what Paul is calling for here is the call of the Christian is for unity, to come together and not to separate, not to cause division or strife, but to stir up love and good works with one another in unity of having the same mind. But this is unity, not uniformity. See, true spiritual unity in Christ comes internally as a matter of the heart, while uniformity comes from external pressure. One commentator, Warren Wearsby, said this, In a gracious way, Paul is saying to the church, Your disagreements reveal that there is a spiritual problem in your fellowship. 
It isn't going to be solved by rules or threats. Definitely not keyboard warriors. It's going to be solved when your hearts are right with Christ and with each other. Paul wanted them to see that the basic cause was selfishness. And that selfishness is caused by pride. There can be no joy in the life of the Christian who puts themselves above others. See, the joyful unity comes from this key phrase we see in verse 3. Count or consider others more significant than yourself. Unity is found when pride is corrected, when it is rebuked, when it is adjusted by looking to Christ first and others next. Scripture puts it perfectly clear in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant, for Jesus' sake. Now, if this was an entire message on stay humble, see, that is a cultural phrase. In our culture, humility is something to aspire to. It's something to get better at, to be disciplined in. Now, it hasn't always been the case in, in early Roman culture where, the, where this was written. It was not the case. Humility was seen as weakness. Pride was something to aspire to. In our culture, authenticity is a key word. But you see, if you Google that, it brings up thousands of results. But that source of humility is what's key. Where does a Christian find a humble heart? And see, Google would point you to internal. Find it within yourself that the more you love yourself, the more you will love others. But friends, that's not true. It's a false narrative and we've bit and we've loved it and we're living for it. But the truth is love Christ and then look to others. Get your life right with him and then look to others. See, you can make yourself seem humble to others, but the pride of your heart will permeate your actions. The source of your humility is key. The, these commands of humility, of humility are entirely dependent. So verses 1 through 4, the commands of humility and unity are entirely dependent on the truth that's found in verses 5 through 11. We're called to consider others more significant than ourselves, which seems hard. And by our own willpower, it's impossible but we don't do it by that. We do it by looking to the example, the ultimate perfect example of Jesus Christ. So verse 5, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. What is the source of our humility? How can we have this one mind, unity amongst ourselves? It's given to us. Notice Paul does not say it's something for us to aspire to. It's not something for us to work for or to earn. Jesus gives this to us as we look to him. The embodiment of humility is found in Jesus Christ. And when we are found in him, we are conformed to his image. We have union with Christ Jesus and we are granted this humility. The spirit of God is actively conforming our minds to be the mind of Christ. And we see in verses 6 through 8 a beautiful picture of our Christology. It's incredible. This is beautiful, right? And we need to take note of the key words that are found here. 
Okay, so in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, let's read these together. And we're going to go word by word, and we're going to pick up on how beautiful our Savior is. So verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of his servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that first key word there, and if you're, you love to highlight, you like to take notes, write down form of God. He was in the form of God. Now in English, that can sound like we're saying he's kind of like God. He maybe is a type of God. He looks like God. But in the Greek, it is much clearer. This is saying that Jesus is God. The Greek word for was or being like is not used here. Morphe is the word that is used here. And the word for form in the Greek means... And Paul could use many different words, but he chose morphe, which is used here, and it's also used in verse 7. It stresses the essence of a person's nature. Paul is speaking of Jesus' continuous state or condition, the thing that never changes. He is speaking directly to that, and Paul only uses this word twice. And he uses it for describing Jesus as the form of God and also the form of God of a servant. Jesus was not simply kind of like God or adopted by God. Jesus is the same in substance and same in essence as the Spirit and the Father. Jesus doesn't merely appear to be like God or adopted into the Godhead or even a servant. He is the incarnate Christ. He is fully God, full divinity, and full glory. A second key word that you can circle or underline, grasped, did not consider equality a thing to be grasped, to be kept, or to cling to, to be held on to. The Christ had all the rights, the privileges, the authority, and the power. His attitude was not to cling on to those things. Let me explain this for a second. Jesus never leveraged his position and power Because the posture of Christ is not of grasping or grabbing or clinging to what rightfully is his, it's of giving. Christ does not cling to and say, I will not go down. I will not humble myself. But it's open-handed giving, not grasping but giving. But there is one who thinks that equality with God is something to be grasped. Adam tried to become like God by grasping. But Christ, who is the perfect Adam, became a man by releasing. Pride and sin continues to stir inside of us to be like God, yet God himself did not hold on to these things. The posture of Jesus is giving, not grasping. And we see he emptied himself. If you're following along in the NIV, it might translate, he he made himself nothing. And this is a a cool Greek phrase that literally would translate, he emptied himself of self. Jesus is not emptying himself of divinity. He's not becoming less like God. He's not not, uh, emptying himself of any divine attributes. 
He's emptying himself of self-interest. See, self is the thing that causes problems in our marriages. Self is the thing that causes conflict with friends. Self is the thing that judges the pride in others, but defends the pride in ourselves. See, self is the thing that Jesus emptied himself of. Not any divine attribute. And we see that in the likeness of men. He was bent towards servanthood. He became man. Christ became more than God in a human body. He took on flesh. He became incarnate. He took on all the essential attributes of man, of humanity, without sin. And he became man. And what he did not take on, he cannot redeem. Jesus is 100% man. He is 100% man. He's 100% God. That's really bad math, but that's perfect salvation. What Jesus did not take on in man, he cannot redeem. Then we see humbled himself. Again, circle, underline, his humility did not stop in becoming man. His humility has no end. Because then we see he was humbled himself to the point of death. This is huge because a lot of us, we won't even humble ourselves to let people in front of us as they pass us by. Right? You play the speed up game like I know you do. Right? I do that too. I see a car come by. I'm like, I need to teach them a lesson. I need to speed up a little bit so they have to break and they know that I'm as fast as them. That's ridiculous, right? I can't humble myself to let someone courteously inside my lane. I, I have to jump lanes at the grocery aisle and social distance so I feel like I'm 100 feet back and I'm freaking out because what if they finish ahead? My time is valuable. I can't humble myself even to that point to allow someone to go in front of me. I can't humble myself just to say, you're right and I'm wrong. I'll sit with my hands crossed and say, mm-hmm, but I can't muster the words, I am wrong and I am sorry. We aren't talking, we're talking about nothing here. This is dumb little stuff. But Jesus humbled himself to the point of death. And this isn't a death of old age, it's the cross. And that's our final key word. It's not a death of old age, it's a death on the cursed cross. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, the perfect and ultimate embodiment of humility is found only in Christ Jesus. And then we see the glorious conclusion in verses 9 through 11. See, we, we, in, in Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation, Jesus coming to us. And then we celebrate Good Friday of Jesus dying on the cross. Then Easter, we celebrate the resurrection. We've been through all the major events in the Christian calendar, right? There's a few more, but these are the highlights, right? And we get to, the, we get to Easter now in 9 through 11. And it says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 9, Therefore God, see Christ's humiliation is in verses 8 through 
5 through 8. Then his exaltation is found in verses 9 through 11. But these are causally and inseparably linked. You can't get to the exalted you can't get to the exalted Jesus, the exalted Christ without going to the cross. That was the temptation that that, that Satan delivered to him. In the desert, he said, listen, I can give you the kingdoms without the cross. And Jesus said, that's not the way. And so we look to Jesus, and he was made low so that we might humble ourselves and be made holy in him. Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The way of exaltation is through humility. So what's the point? Did Jesus simply die on the cross? Did he come down so that we could have an example of how to live our lives? Friends, we need to be reminded of the gospel this morning. So if you are a believer in Christ, be stirred in your your affection of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. If you're just checking it out and you're just wondering, what is Jesus about? Friends, this is what it's about. For illustrative purposes, let's put God on top of the mountain. So God is up here, and we think, how can we get there? So all religions carve a path to God, and they try to get there, right? Uh, Some religions say that's the point of enlightenment, or some religions say there's many paths. Find the path that's right for you. But see, Christianity says there's one path, and there's only one path because we can't make it to the top. See, the path that we carve doesn't even get off the base, We're not even close to the summit into his presence. For us to receive salvation, it wasn't us making a path to him. It was Jesus coming off the mountain and making the path for us because he is the way. Friends, we believe in the exclusivity of Christ because there's no way for us to take a step towards God. We know how sinful we are. We look inside of ourselves and we don't see beauty we don't see, we, we, we see sin. We see wicked and deceitful hearts. And we look to Christ and we say, and he says to us, follow me. Why is that so powerful? Because he is the way. He's the path. There is no path outside of Jesus Christ. He did not cling to his position on top of the mountain. He did not cling to his authority. He did not cling to his glory. He took on flesh so that we might have the perfect mediator, the only one that can secure salvation for us. And it is proven because he has risen again and he has promised to return. Friends, that is the good news. If that doesn't stir you, you've got to ask what's holding you back, what's holding you back in your walk with Christ. Is it doubt? Is it guilt? Have I truly ran out of the forgiveness that he offers? Does he still have mercy and loving kindness for me? You can't out-sin the grace of God. Friends, to go up, you must go down. Submit in humility to the beauty of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, 9, I have no righteousness of my own. James 4, 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Don't fall for the false narrative of pride that is irking at you to exalt yourself, to prove yourself, to find power and authority, influence and success on your knees in humility before the humbled Christ. 
The incarnation of Jesus is the antithesis of our human drive to pridefully set ourselves over others. Although Christ was entitled to all the privilege and the power in the universe, Jesus considered others more significant than himself. He used his power and influence to give and not to grasp. He did not hold on, but he gave. Unity is found. When we look to Christ and then consider others more significant than ourselves. So here are a few questions to think through as you go, your, go through your week. How could you lay down your rights and a result, as a result encourage someone today? Kids, how can you follow Jesus today by considering someone else's interests or needs more important than your own? Students, what would it look like for you to look to others before you look to yourself? Adults, what would it look for you to aspire more for the posture of servanthood than the posture of power? Church, how can we hold the same mind together and look to each other and see that we are clothed in Christ? And when our opinions and our stances and our beliefs differ, that we have grace and mercy with one another. We have charity in our conversations because we are of the same mind, the same affection, and the same love because of what Christ has done for us. The call of the Christian is to humble themselves as Christ humbled himself, that they might have the same mind, the mind of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I, I come before you completely aware of the pride residing in my own heart. It seems it's endless. Father, rebuke that, correct that, root that out, that I might find security and hope and peace and joy only in your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that as division stirs and as strife comes from beneath and as sin rears its ugly head, that the church would stand in one mind of one love, united in Christ for his kingdom because we are citizens of heaven. We do not oppose your kingdom. We rest in it. And we follow you today. God, thank you for the beauty of your salvation. Thank you for giving us for all of our sin. Thank you for your incredible mercy and loving kindness to us. We look to that, we trust in it, and we're reminded of the beauty of our blessed hope on, your, on, on Jesus' return to make all things new. And we look to that as our hope. Pray all this in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen.